name is Adrian Cartland. I'm the creator of LIRA, the Artificially Intelligent Legal Information Research Assistant, and the principal of Cartland Law. And today I'm going to talk about legal technology, risks, and regulation. Now the background for this is an uh, interesting point on different views between technologists and lawyers in legal regulation. Now, uh, in some discussions, I was classified as a technologist uh, you can. And um, I found that amusing because I'm both the principal of Cartland Law, a, a practicing tax lawyer, and the creator of Lira. So I'm also a technologist. And what I've noticed in these discussions, and it was a very accurate point that pointed out there is a difference in risk in, in that technologists will say, let's go forward. We don't need anything holding us back. And lawyers go, whoa, we're conservative. We're always looking at risks. Uh, and so I would point out that there's actually something else that's missing in this discussion. And that discussion is the, and that's the difference between lawnmowers and terrorists. So that is to say, uh, I think that um, the existing state of legal regulation in Australia is both wrong to assist um, technology advancing and wrong to pick up its risks. So let me, let me start. Lawnmowers versus terrorists. This discussion started with a, um, an observation by the US Statistician General about the number of people that are killed every year by terrorists and the number of people who are killed every year by lawnmowers. Uh, and then um, Kim Kardashian, which we, so we're going straight to meaty stuff now. Um, Kim Kardashian tweeted that um, how, uh, how, how many people are killed by lawnmowers and, and we shouldn't be worried about terrorists. Because in 2017, there were nine people killed by terrorists in the US and 69 people killed by lawnmowers. And so what we might derive from that is that lawnmowers are a bigger risk than terrorists. Now, um, the statistician and um, risk theorist Nassim Taleb pointed out quite glibly and quite eruditely that there's a big difference between these. You shouldn't compare them because lawnmowers aren't trying to kill you. Now, um, thereafter, there was a, a very fascinating mathematical paper that's been put out that explains this in more detail. So here we have a probability density. Probability density is um, all, always adds up to 100% and will um, and is the number of times of any particular probability happening. So here we have a, so um, there are lots of examples of there being about you know 50 to 100 lawn like lawnmower deaths in the U.S. every year, and this is what's called a normal distribution. A normal distribution is something like uh, the height of a population. So the smallest person in the world is three and a half feet. The tallest person is nine feet. Everyone is sort of inside that kind of distribution. You're not going to find anyone who's a hundred feet. Now, um, this is to be contrasted with, say, wealth, which is obviously not normally distributed. You might, it might go 
the wealth might, uh, there might be a lot of people that are sort of medium wealth, but then there are people like Jeff Bezos who's worth you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. Now in this case, uh, we're looking at terrorist attacks. Now in 2017, the number of people who died from terrorist attacks was nine. But the distribution of that, so the number of fatalities, the probability density, is very thin. It's what's called a fat-tailed distribution. Which means there's a small likelihood of any one thing happening, but there is a non-zero chance of something happening. And in fact, it would continue off this way. So there might be nine people die, or zero people die, or a thousand, or two thousand, or ten thousand, or a hundred million. It's that there is a non-zero chance. Now, there is a zero chance of, of 100 million people dying from lawnmowers. I mean, just the idea everyone is out there mowing their lawns one day and then shick, off go their toes. Um, it, it just can't happen. But could conceivably, you know, an entire nation be destroyed by some kind of terrorist attack? Yes. Um, could there be some catastrophic attack? Yes. And so once we look at these distribution curves, we, we start seeing them in lots of other places. So let's consider, say, small banks. If if um, all banks were, were not in, interconnected and they raise deposits from the local community, lend out to the local community, small bank could fail. People could have a run on the bank. They could, uh, they could the local bank manager could make a lot of bad loans. It could fail and everyone locally could lose their money. Now you go, well, so what if it's bigger? Well, that's great, the, the small bank has a much lower chance of, a large bank has a much lower chance of failure, but it has the risk of something catastrophic and systemic happening. So for example, we, we see in the 2008 uh, global financial crisis, huge banks had to be bailed out by taxpayers because of complex financial instruments that they had written. And these banks were too big to fail. Uh, these, so there is this systemic huge risk and it is a long tail risk. And so you might say that there, things are more robust every, every year, you're not gonna have your local bank falling down, but no, you might have the entire system, some kind of catastrophic event happening. Same might happen with human-driven cars. If, some, if uh, someone has a car accident, what is the maximum number of people they could kill? You know, five occupants in the car, they could crash into a bus or, or something terrible. Like there, there is a, um, um, uh, you know, a dozen, a couple of dozen people would be the maximum number you could kill. With autonomous cars, one of the things that people say that it is the safest about it is that um, there is not going to be these errors. No one's going, you know, a robot's never going to fall asleep. A robot is, um, is not going to, is going to always follow the rules. There's, not, there's going to be no speeding robots. And they'll say that on average, there are many, many fewer fatalities um, if everyone was driving autonomous cars. I would suggest that there is instead a different risk. What if there is a centrally distributed database and that database gets corrupted and suddenly 10,000 cars simultaneously crash? Now, Tesla can overnight update its software and your Tesla car can do might do something that you, you'd never
thought it could do when you bought it, which is fantastic. You know, it might learn how to um, uh, park itself. But what if there is some fault in there and suddenly everyone's Teslas break? Now, again, the likelihood of a particular, t the, the, um, the number of Tesla crashes with uh, the more autonomous they become, there will be fewer attacks. There will be fewer crashes, but there is this small and non-zero possibility of something huge happening. Now I come to lawyers. What are the risks we have for lawyers? Think about what our, le our legal regulations is, is set to do. It's, stop to, it's to stop one particular lawyer doing something bad. So a lawyer's got a gambling issue and he steals from the trust fund. Or a particular lawyer lies to the court. Uh, that's bad. That's what our legal re regulations stop. I don't need to go through the entire Legal Practitioner Act but it's clear that our legal regulations are geared towards this one thing. And rightfully so, that is the correct way of regulating a person. Now, for legal tech, the risk is totally wrong. The legal tech regulation, by using the exist existing regulations to stop, um, uh, to, to, to try and prevent a legal tech company from doing something wrong, they got, it's, it's not going, they're not going to do that wrong thing. No legal tech company is going to steal from one particular person's bank account. Not, you know, you, when you have a large corporatized system or an algorithmic system that inherently doesn't have that trust that an individual has, no one's going to just rip out, it from, rip out money from the trust fund. It has to be clear for the, for the legal tech company to get into operation that they're not going to do that. Because you can't eyeball them, just like you would your local lawyer. Instead, the risk is of some catastrophic failure. So what if we had a hypothetical company that was looking after everyone's trust accounts? And then there was some catastrophic failure and all of the money got, got transferred to Zimbabwe. It was hacked. It was just a glitch. Something went wrong. And so what we have is we're having long tail risks. So one thing, so I think that the existing regulation not only constrains legal tech, but also doesn't pick up its problems. Now, how does it constrain? I'm going to use an example that was given at, by the futurist Mark Pesky at the um, Australian Judicial Administration Conference. And he was talking about things that legal tech could do. Uh, and he gave an example of using blockchain and he said, imagine a hypothetical system where there is some goods sold and then people pay for it in cryptocurrency, say Bitcoins, and it is held under a smart contract on the blockchain. And then, uh, and then when the goods have been properly transferred or the contract completed, then the money goes across. It's like, that's a, that's a, great, it's a great thing. Um, it's potentially a really useful system, but um, pointed out that we couldn't do that in South Australia. I mean, I don't know about other states, but I know in South Australia, it would totally breach our trust accounting regulations. Uh, I mean, for, first of all, we've had to have special legislation or regulations passed this year to enable um, bank uh, trust accounts to accept money by the bank's pay ID, which is just their, their latest update. Now, this is just existing banks changing the way they're doing things in a, in a very singular way 
this is not including blockchain escrow cryptocurrency. I mean, if you put cryptocurrency in your in your in your trust account, or you're holding it in some kind of trust, and you're a lawyer, uh, you <laughs> I think you're in big trouble. At least the way our regulations are at present. So what that means then is that lawyers can't invent this. Not at what while being lawyers, they've got to jump ship. They've got to become technologists, no longer lawyers. They've got, um, or lawyers sit there and go, well, I don't want to innovate. Um, and so instead of having our lawyers create things, we've got venture capitalists, or we've got, you know, we've got um, cryptocurrency anarchists go, hey, cool, I don't believe in government and I want to create something that totally avoids this. Now, I want to make a point about technology now, and that is, is that technology changes are inevitable. So, we, there are certain discuss like uh, technology, like for cars, for example, um, no, a number of people working on cars at the same time, combustion engines. Uh, so I happened that Ford won out. Uh, a number of people were working on light bulbs same time. A lot of people working on phones. Looking at more recent examples, we have Google, Facebook and Uber. Now at the same time, if you remember back, uh, Google was competing with a dozen or so other search engines. I remember using AltaVista extensively. Facebook was competing with MySpace. It could have been MySpace. Uber fighting with Lyft. Now the technology itself is going to happen whether or not you have Google, Facebook or Uber. Could have been AltaVista, MySpace, or Lyft, or it could have been the Chinese equivalents Baidu, Weibo, and Didi. And so, there isn't a way of standing on the shore and stopping the tide. If there is some technological change that's going to happen, if someone's going to come up with you know a cool escrow blockchain system, it's going to happen. And it's a case of who does it. And so then the question is: is do we as lawyers? think that we have something to contribute. Now, I think we do. Now, I would say that the rule of law is not something that's natural. It doesn't exist in the environment. You can see plenty of countries around the world where they have no respect for the rule of law. It's the natural state of humans, it's chaos. We have worked hard over hundreds of years. I don't need to recite our history of, of pain, like inquisitions, of um, wars to fight for the rule of law and uh, we as lawyers we we're trained from the beginning that this is very important that um, to respect our fiduciary duties to respect our duty to the courts our duty to our clients um, uh, follow the laws as they are and other people don't necessarily have that view you know and so I think that legal technology as designed by lawyers given our, our present views will be is created in a totally different way than people who don't have those views so i would suggest that um and uh, that changes can be made even at a very subtle level that we would just think is anathema as a lawyer so for example what if we changed an algorithm that was used to govern sentencing decisions ever so slightly in the training data so that it, uh, if someone was a political dissident, 
it reduces their chances. Now, how, how do we know that a, a Baidu, Weibo, or Didi doesn't do that? What if we maximize what we're doing to uh, create uh, wealth for the founder and some VC backers rather than an overriding obligation to provide justice? Facebook, Google, Uber, maybe that's what they do. Now, so I think that as lawyers, we have something very important that we can contribute. And we shouldn't be held back by that. We shouldn't be held back by the regulations that are designed to stop lawnmower deaths. Instead, we should not have those regulations applied to technology at all because not, they, they hold back and instead look for things that cause systemic risks. Now exactly what that, what that legislation would be, I would suggest that you would have something more outcomes based. You would say, let's look at if you create uh, a document that uh, total that is used a million times by people and it's totally negligent, then there is some kind of problems there. If you create a, a huge problem, let me give you an example of one that I found. In Australia, um, people are often will set up limited recourse borrowing arrangements in their self-managed superannuation funds. And one of the, one of the pieces of doing that uh, is you need a bear trust. Now, we'll know what we need to do to set up a bear trust. It's one person holds something on trust for someone else. It's the simplest type of trust. Now, um, for, uh, for banking reasons, banks will not want to have anything else in that trust. And so what I've seen in about 40% of their trusts that I've um, seen, seen set up for self-managed super funds is um, they will purchase the property and then declare that uh, well, they, will, they will set up this bear trust and then purchase property. There's no notional set, settlement sum or anything, nothing else. They, they say, uh, I hold this trust, this uh, property on trust for the self-managed super fund. They purchase Blackacre and thereafter they're supposed to hold it on trust. Now, hope you've seen the problem if you've done law. You remember that there's three certainties. Certainty of um, intention, well that's there. Certainty of beneficiary, yeah, that's there. Uh, subject matter, when you're declaring the trust, you don't have any subject matter, you don't have any trust property. So, like I said, I'm not, I'm not sure, I haven't seen every bear trust that's, that's been drawn in Australia, but from, my, from what I've seen, like a huge percentage of them are just wrong at law. And this is just something that I've observed in my very narrow field of tax law. Now, I'm sure that when you look to things much broader, you would see um, plenty of other areas. Now, how have we got um, this kind of problem in bear trusts? Because um, the banks have created this fantastic system. These are all the things we want. We want tick box A, B, C, D, um, and, uh, and it's created this broad, repetitive problem that is now across, say, 30, 40% of um, limited recourse borrowing arrangements in Australia. So what are we likely, so, and how would we prevent that? Now, uh, existing regulations is gonna look at one particular lawyer. You're gonna try and find one 
lawyer or firm that's done this in Australia. It's, it's not that that doesn't help. Um, instead, saying you have, um, you know, if if a firm has created tens of thousands of these documents, um, how do you find the the harm? How do you prosecute them? Uh, I think that's the question that should be looking instead of trying to say let's take the legis the regulations that apply to war mowers and apply them to terrorists. Say let's look at um, preventing terrorists itself. And that might mean that there's a lot of regulation. We go to the airports, there's a lot of security there for this outlandish and you know we, and we think almost never to happen chance of a terrorist attack on our planes. But it's precisely that, because we're, we're looking to stop that massive terrible thing. Now when we run through basic statistics that, that says let's look at an average, um, it misses out these long tail effects. Now as humans, we have an innate understanding of long tail effects, big risks. We are programmed to recognize that thing moving over there could be a tiger. And we will go, let's be afraid of it, let's stop it. And we shouldn't use nathiness or scientism to push down our natural instincts. So, um, in conclusion, I think that um, we should avoid mathiness, avoid scientism, avoid trying to apply something that is designed for humans to robots and, um, and realize that robots have their own spe spe specific needs for regulation. Thank you very much.